0: Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have the pleasure of having Olivier Sharon who works for Impartner. And Olivier, why don't you give a quick introduction to who you are, what your role is, and what your experience is in the channel.
1: Thank you very much, Marcus, and thank you for asking me to be here today. Yes, yeah, so I'm Olivier Charon. I've been in uh, channel marketing, really as such, for over 30 years, it seems uh, a long time ago. Started really doing global channel marketing in Europe and in US for a number of IT vendors before I decided to do something about it. To do something about the the problem I saw in the channel. Created the channel marketing agency first and then a channel software company which I recently essentially sold to ImPartner, ImPartner being the leader PRM vendor globally today. Today at Impartner, I'm responsible for managing the news-on-demand and social-on-demand business. For those who don't know, those are unique pieces of PRM software that enable better communications to and through partners today. So, 30 years in channel, plenty to talk about, Marcus.
0: So, Olivier, can you explain for the people who are just channel curious what PRM is?
1: PRM stands for Partner Relationship Management. It's a set of software pieces, if you'd like, that enable the coordination of a vendor-to-partner ecosystem. How's it different
0: from CRM?
1: It deals with partners. There are different things you need to know about. There are partners need to be engaged, communications need to happen with the partners, you need to be able to register deals on behalf of partners. So it's a very complex ecosystem that goes well beyond, in my mind, what CRM does. And for some organizations who work with tens of thousands of partners globally, It's really the glue that sticks between the vendor and the partners, between the sales and marketing and technical operations. It's where all workflows are enabled, all processes are enabled. And essentially, this is what makes your partner program live.
0: So one of the things that you and I both agree on is that channel sales is probably the toughest job there is in sales. And it's certainly the most complex because you're dealing with... end customer through a third party over whom you have no direct control, you don't hire, you don't fire, you don't decide on their compensation, you don't discipline them. That's all done through influence and earning their trust. And in order to be able to do that, you have to have a vastly different profile to a typical sales management role, which seems to cover 90-plus different functions. How does PRM help a channel manager juggle all of those balls?
1: I completely agree with you. A channel sales manager is essentially a salesperson with a massive coordination hat on. A partner account manager is there to manage partners, to make sure everything happens together on projects, before project, post project. So very important. PRM is here to really help Partner account managers to get a good or should be there to make them understand how good the partner is, what their history with those partners are, to make sure that the flow from deal to project to account happens. So it's really that enabling platform that partner account managers and channel salespeople should rely upon. Vice versa, it's also the platform that enables the partner. When the account managers are not there, and sometimes they're not there because the partner is very small, to replace, essentially, the partner account manager. PRM is there to be the place where they can find information about the company, information about how to sell, information on how to market, incentives, where to register deals. So it's a very complex solution.
0: This then brings me to the next enormous question, because... One of the things I've seen over the past couple of decades is that there's a tendency to try and lump partners into these one-size-fits-all personas. And they have forgotten, to a large extent, that they're dealing with human beings, with human frailties, human faults, human aspirations, and their own reasons for doing things. What I'm curious about is this whole piece around partner engagement. Why is partner engagement so important and so neglected?
1: So I'll go back first to your question about personas or your point about personas because it's a bugbear for me. If you go back a few years, we were dealing with partners as companies. You're gold, you're silver, you're platinum, you're copper, you're nothing, you're registered. And everything was aligned to that. And it was a very, very simple way to segment partners. More recently, we've moved to a persona based models where maybe we're trying to pocket partners, not just in those categories, but add an extra layer above that of who they are themselves. Are they in sales? Are they in marketing? Are they in technical operations? Are they pre sales? My problem with that, although it's a great step forward. The day you start with personas, you are starting with assumptions. You're assuming that all salespeople want the same. You're assuming all salespeople do the same. You're assuming they all come from the same background to be in sales, and that's wrong. So the first point I'll make there is, this has been a great step forward. We need to shift all we do towards humans. And to your point, we need to remember that the people we're dealing with Represent companies. Yes, I agree, but they are people. Now, in terms of partner engagement, this is something Marcus, we could spend hours there. I mean, why? <laughs> and, and we are, right? Okay. Why is it so important? It's we need to make sure as organization that the money we spent in recruiting partners is well spent. And we need to make sure that those partners who have joined our partner program or we have made the first sales for us carry on doing that. Now, I do have uh, some reservations on that, but if we assume that's the goal we want to do, then we need to make sure that we have everything at our hands as vendors to make sure we continue to engage with our partners and make sure they engage not just on day one when they register on our partner portal, but all the way through. That's very, very important. This is how we maximize our bucks. We know it's much easier to support someone who is already... On board and trying to get someone else. So why do we fail? We fail simply because the task is huge. Okay. Getting partner engaged means we need to understand, first of all, what they want. That's difficult together. Okay. We try to do it by putting a few questions on our partner portal. Great, but those you know, answers vary and partners vary, partners evolve. We need to make sure we train our partners. And again, that's difficult because we need to train them across all our sales, technical, marketing areas, and more. We need to teach them how to sell our product. We need to teach them how to support our products. We need to tell them how to get count on our product and so on. So very, very difficult. We need to plan together. We need to measure that engagement. We need to... There's a huge amount of activities we need to do with our partners to make sure they are continuing to work with us and engage with us. One of the things that I'm very knowledgeable about, I would like to say, having developed news on demand, is we need to communicate with the partners in a way that's meaningful, that's personalized, that's targeted. And often, this is where we fail first. You mentioned the one-size-fits-all. And unfortunately, in the world of communication, and I'm not necessarily talking about what partner account managers can communicate with their partners, because when you have that one-on-one relationship or one-to-few, then channel sales guys can communicate in a very targeted manner. But imagine you're a a vendor company that has 20,000 partners worldwide in 160 countries all speaking their own language, then communicating effectively with them is very, very expensive. So what we've done for the last 30 years, and I'm as guilty as everybody else, who's lived in channel, is we send one size fit all emails, one size fit all newsletters to all of them, typically because of course we do it in English because translating is very expensive. And so where we should be using communication as a tool to deliver very, very important news to the partners to keep them engaged, where we should be using emails to make sure they're aware of the next big thing. Should we use newsletters to tell them about the next webinar recording or, or live webinar about certain products, certain sales marketing, training, etc. We fail because we deliver very box standard, very one-size-fits-all communications which people switch off of.
0: So why is this? Is this a cultural thing in terms of senior management seeing the channel as something other than their direct sales force? Is it that they don't value the channel? Is it that they would just prefer to be run by accountants and save money instead of being effective? I know I'm being fairly judgmental here, but what's your take?
1: It's tough. You have to give a bit of leeway. Your last comment is very valid. At the end of the day, it's a numbers game and you have to be careful. And sadly for us, in the channel industry, I still think the channel is poor child of the family. The budgets we get allocated are small. So... Or maybe they're misallocated and we can discuss that again. But it's true that they have a communications budget and it's true that that budget truthfully is not sufficient today for many of the organizations I work with to do a good job. Because, and I've done it before, if you want to take one email and if you want to make sure it's going to the right partner with the right content. So let me give you an example. You may be talking about a, a certain product. Let's say you're launching a new product, and guess what? Some of your smaller partners may want to know one part of what you're delivering. Some of the largest partners who maybe offer the full stack of your product may want to know everything there. And of course, for each of those products, each of those partners will have different camps, different enablement campaign, and of course will speak their own language. Suddenly, that white email you send, if you really want to make it very personalized, very targeted, becomes 30. And guess what? The cost has gone from one to 30, because that's today before some tools that we have brought to market, that's what you need to do. And so you can't blame them. There is money, it's limited, and sometimes you have to do the best you can with what you have, knowing full well that that's not going to deliver you the results you expect.
0: So are there any good examples of where organizations have prioritized so that they do personalize in those high-priority markets or with those high-priority partners. And then they genericize the rest.
1: I have seen that happen. It does work. I've seen some of my clients generating some super-huge response rates from certain email that they sent. But you're talking about organizations here that do have more than just a few bucks to make it happen. No matter what, there is that thinking, there is that content creation, there is that delivery, that cost.
0: That's a very, how do I put this politely, accountant-centric type of mentality because they're seeing the cost, not the return. And they're seeing it as a cost, not an investment. Why does that persist? When we know, you said something which jarred with me a moment ago, which is it's a numbers game. I genuinely do not believe that sales in any shape, way, shape or form is a numbers game. Unless you're piling it high and selling it cheap and you've got people just crawling through. If you understand your customer and you understand your partner's customer, then you can be very targeted. And when you play the numbers game and you throw lots of mud at the wall, that's a hideously inefficient way of doing things. So I'm curious what your retort, your <laughs> comeback is on that.
1: That's it. That's so interesting. One, in many ways, I agree with you. I think. Being very targeted would be a good thing. But I think there is a general consensus that we need more. And the answer to we need more customers is we need more partners. Not we work better with the existing partners we have. And you do have to consider that yes, there are some partners out there whom you may not know today who could be super profitable partners in the future. Essentially, I've seen a lot of organizations today not focusing on that targeting, but focusing on that broader approach. As soon as they have some channel partners, they want to get some more. Is it an internal pressure by investors? Is it an internal pressure by CEOs? Well, that is very possible. And I've heard that before. I've heard that organizations are in the channels on the pressure themselves as an organization to get more channel partners, to get bigger. As I say, the easy answer seems to be well, let's recruit some more partners. So instead of spending the time with trying to understand the partners, in trying to maximize the engagement with those partners, the easy answer is let's go and recruit another 10,000 or another 1,000 or another 100 or another five to make sure we can cope with more demand. And I agree with you. I'm not sure that's the right thing, but that's what happens today.
0: What's really interesting, I saw Jay McBain speak at the the Client Summit in March. And his research is pointing to an increased preference towards niching and very refined niching. So instead of being an MSP specializing in healthcare, you become an MSP specializing in care homes in the Southeast District of Chicago. And you get more by saying yes to less. And I certainly see that in terms of my own business and My clients' businesses, where they try and be everything to everybody, they end up being nothing to anyone. They're just another commodity provider. Where they niche, they can develop a specialization. They can really go deep. They can hire people who are specialists in that area. They can dominate that space. And then once they've dominated, they can pivot five degrees either way and keep growing that way. But I think growth is going to come from saying no rather than saying yes. And before we started the conversation, we had an interesting discussion around the million partners selling one product versus a handful of partners selling a lot of product predictably and consistently. I get the first model. And if you have investors screaming at you, grow, 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 then that kind of makes sense at a logical level. But at a practical level, how the hell do you manage a million
1: partners? It's a nightmare. Okay. So first of all, I'll go back to what you mentioned about the niche players. I work with a lot of very, very large vendors, typically IT vendors. And the model you described, I have not yet seen. Okay. I don't see that at all. I see the million partners, maybe not the millions, don't exaggerate, but... I see a lot of partners untargeted and an untargeted approach typically by the vendors to support those partners. So I see that. The approach you mentioned is good. But remember one thing, all the marketing you're going to do, all the sales, all the compliance, all the effort you're going to put into supporting niche players, when you turn to that five degrees angle you mentioned, you're going to have to completely replicate and restart. And therefore, that's going to cost you twice as much. But I agree. If that targeted approach works and it should work, then you get the results. But I can tell you, Marcus, you may see that. I don't see that at all today. Now, to go back to my point about the million partners, I think it comes back to expectations. We never, as vendors, really ask what partners want to do. We don't ask them sometimes what they do. We just try to flog products through them. And my point about the million partners is that we assume All our partners want to stay with us and wants to sell lots of us. And we push really hard to make that happen. And sometimes it's work, great news, and sometimes it doesn't. What I'm saying is we need to be very realistic about expectations. And as long as you have a support model that doesn't break the bank by supporting those thousands of million partners, then if you set your expectations right, you should have in your partner ecosystem Some partners who maybe have come in once, sold once, and will never sell again. You should also be able to support those partners who will come every so often. And you should also support those partners who will come back over and over again and sell more. We should differentiate, and maybe that's where your niche comes through, your niche concept comes through. We should differentiate this between those behaviors of partners. They're not all the same. But if you have a model that supports each of those different five degrees of partners, if you are of those personas of partners, group of partners, then all will be well. But what now, what we're trying to do is we push again one brush and say, all my partners want to grow with me. I'm going to try everything I can to make them grow with me. The reality is you are going to fail.
0: There's a very fine article in the Channel Executive magazine this week called Why the Vendors Get Up Your Nose? And it kicks off with... Selfish, egotistical, and ignorant of our reasons for being in business. You've made a bunch of wrong assumptions about us. You never ask good questions. You never listen. You act as if we spend our lives only thinking about selling your products. We don't. When you do call, it feels like a drive-by shooting. Doing business with you is a pain in the neck. You handle disputes badly. You move the goalposts. Your communication sucks. Your recent changes involved little or no consultation and have badly affected our revenue potential at a time when our margins are averaging 70%. I don't want to work 70 to 100-hour weeks for no money anymore. Now, that was distilled from a number of conversations that I've had with owners of MSPs. And what's interesting is the reaction it's had. Because if you look at CRN's recent survey on how partners view their vendors, they don't come out looking pretty because... You're wrong. I'm wrong. You're wrong. In many
1: cases, I agree with you, completely agree with you. And everything I said today and everything you mentioned, we understand the same. But trust me, I know some vendors who have some extremely, extremely engaged partners. Absolutely. And so
0: the, reason- the rule of the exception though.
1: Well, that's the thing. Are there the rules of the exception? I'm finding quite a few of those, okay? But that's the thing again, is we're making assumption that everybody wants the same. And so even that article says Everybody believes that. Well, that's not true. Again, we're not looking at humans. We're not looking at different entities. We're not looking at different models. We're not looking at different engagement requirements. So you're right. If you take a brush, the comments you met will be applicable for 90% of the partners are there or for 90% of the partner to vendor relationship, but some work.
0: Absolutely. And it's those ones that I really want to concentrate on because like you, I absolutely agree that it is the vendor's responsibility, the channel manager's responsibility to understand why the partner is in business, why the individual salesperson comes to work, what they're trying to achieve, what they're hoping to achieve, and to help them get their needs met. Because if you don't do that, then you're failing at the very basic human level. I suspect we're in violent agreement. We're just coming at it from different angle.
1: It's interesting. One of the things I've always, always kept in mind And the funny thing is, because I'm one of those, is most of the people, most of the partners are small businesses. That's the one thing I always keep in mind. If you don't understand that they are under their own pressure to drive their own business to be successful, to pay the bills at the end of the month, even the sales guys within the partner community has his own objective within that. It's a small business. It's a small team. They're committing to their business for the vast majority. If you don't understand that, you fail. And I agree. In most cases, we fail to understand that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the research on this that came out of Forrester last year is definitive. 94% of MSPs are under 10 people and never scale beyond that. At the moment, they're averaging 17% gross profit, which is barely break-even. That's a nightmare. If you're working 70 to 100-hour weeks, that's a tough old business to be in. And what you're not looking for is the usual monthly call Olivier, what do you got for me? Nothing. Great. I'll speak to you next month. That, to me, is the antithesis of good channel management. Talk to me about what great channel management looks like. You've seen it. You've experienced it. What does the best of the best look like?
1: To go back Rick, to your point, organizations work with existing partners who don't necessarily look at over-recruitment. That's one organizations that are very focused that will deliver everything that needs to deliver to a partner. So I've seen that too. Okay. I've seen organizations that have put the right tools for the right partners at the right time. I'm not sure, but that comes. I've seen organizations that spend the money where they're supposed to spend the money in enablement, spend the money in training, spend the money in that face-to-face relationship. I've seen that. Okay. The company I work with are very, very large. So everything I talk about is on a huge spectrum, large scale. But I've seen those organizations that spend the time and spend the money to obviously enable the one on one relationship where it can with the large partners, but also trying to emulate that with the smaller partners via some kind of tools, via dedicated channel account management structures that support many, many partners, but I have seen organizations who focus on that and who spend the money. And my problem is in channel organizations today, we don't spend enough money. We hire very junior, I don't know if you're going to agree, very oh. junior channel salespeople instead of experienced people. Therefore, those people have no clue and they're the ones making the call every five minutes to a new partner at the end of the quarter saying, have you got anything for me? Although most of their business comes through the channel, have not invested enough in the infrastructure, in their people, to work through channel partners effectively.
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, the two types of people who typically end up in the channel, and bear in mind, I'm a huge advocate of the channel, and I'm a huge advocate of the best practices and best values within the channel. Unfortunately, typically, your channel manager is either Tim Nice But Dim, who's been sent to die, in the channel. <laughs> failed in direct sales. He was good at the Christmas party. The CEO's wife likes him. And so they hang on to him and they say, if we put Tim in the channel, what harm can he do? And then the other is, well, why don't we get our greenhorn salespeople to cut their teeth in the channel where they can do little or no harm? Now, the partners are your best customers. If you cultivate a good partnership with an MSP, SI, VAR they can bring you 30, 40, 50 customers. They're way more precious than an end-user customer. So why on God's earth would you not love them to death? Why wouldn't you make them better, help them achieve their objectives?
1: I agree with you. And as I said, to start with, those channel sales guys are coordinators, okay? They're not just there to manage a relationship, but they're also there to find answers on behalf of the partners. So they have these big, orchestra, conductor, task to make sure the partner gets everything possible from the organization as possible. So it's a big task. Why on earth are they in the profile you described? I've been in the channel for 30 years, Marcus, and I still worry and wonder about that. I don't know.
0: Again, we've developed together with the Divine Group, a psychometric profile based on the competencies that are required for the role. Because a channel manager is much closer to a general manager in profile than a sales manager. And a channel chief is much closer to a chief executive than they are to a VP of sales. Now, if you just look at a channel manager, they need to be adaptable, able to manage and address conflict and head it off at the pass. They have to have ambition and drive, be able to analyze, make decisions, be effective coaches, and this is one of the most underrated areas of channel management. They have to be collaborative, communicate with influence but no power, be able to control and close both the partner but also help them get deals over the line, so midwifing deals, be able to negotiate goals with their partners, be able to manage relationships, be a fantastic planner. And in this respect, Napoleon is a role model. Now, Napoleon won the Battle of Austerlitz two years before a French soldier left French soil. He knew which general would surrender to him at the village of Austerlitz. two years before he kicked off the wall. They need to be able to manage resources. They need to be able to problem solve. They need to be able to work processes and systems. They have to have great intuitive knowledge based on experience to be able to read the situation and be self-aware because very often they need to understand when their biases are getting in the way. They need to be able to take action and be able to juggle all of that in the same twenty-four hours that other human beings do a normal job.
1: So the question is, why don't we get people with the right profile to do that job? And I tell you one thing: my view is so far we haven't had executive or board presence for the channel organization. For me, twenty twenty and beyond, and I've recently mentioned that to a few colleagues at our own customer conference. There is we need chief channel officers on the board to represent the sales organization we don't need a channel organization to report to the sales organization no for most of the companies you and i work with channel is 90 percent of the business but we are lacking that representation at a senior level unless we get that the channel organization will never get sufficient funding to hire the right sales guys to do the right marketing campaigns, to put in place the right tools, that's what we need to do. We need to elevate, as an industry, that channel function. And so far, I've been in there for 30 years. We still suffer from that problem.
0: Well, I think, Olivier, that part of that problem is the legacy, it's the hangover of where leadership came from and what's familiar. Under pressure, we tend to look for what feels familiar. And so what a lot of tech companies do, is they treat direct sales like the golden child. They throw money, the best people, the best training, and they love that side to death. But they also focus on the wrong end of the problem, in my experience with that, because they're so fixated on new business that they forget to keep the existing business, which, again, is a massive problem because I don't think that they understand that whole piece around customer experience and customer retention. And this is one of the things that I'm starting to see with some of the newer kids on the block in terms of tech, because they're going towards a channel model much earlier in their evolution. And so channel is part of their culture. And I think what's going to happen over the next 10 years or so is the larger historical vendors are going to find that their market share is being eroded massively because they have those huge overheads and they haven't invested in the channel. And the channel can give them massive scale, but what they really need are people who are great at coordinating. And my view is that in the future, there are going to be two or three areas that chief executives will come from. One will be the channel chief, the other will be the head of data analytics, and I think the third will be the head of customer experience because those are the people who actually have the big picture. If all you're doing is looking at a balance sheet and all you're doing is worrying about this quarter's growth, then chances are, yes, in this current environment with VCs and private equity and everyone driving towards that nirvana of a massive IPO or an exit and giving birth to a unicorn. But I don't think that the businesses that will sustain can do that for much longer. Because if they do, all that's going to happen is you're going to see rising stars flash and burn out. And you see that all the time in this current market.
1: Now, I'm going to make a parallel. I recently met Jay McVeigh and he predicted that 2019 may be the beginning of a PRM era, just like the 1999, where the beginning of the CRM areas, which, again, is all direct sales. Maybe like the 2009s were part of the beginning of the marketing automation areas. Again, all direct sales. Jay made a prediction that 2019 may be the start of the partner relationship management area. And that's in line with what you're saying, is there are organizations who now understand that to support their partners, they need to put not just the sales infrastructure you mentioned, but also the software, the tools infrastructure in place to grow that business. So maybe, yes, maybe we're starting to see that. But maybe, Marcus, you and I are hoping that after 30 years in the channel, we see a difference. I'm hopeful I've been working for 30 years. Nothing has really changed. The organizations requiring channels there, there were giants there, there were unicorns when I started. I'm just hope that what we are saying is not just wishful thinking, that there are things happening there. Turns out, it seems, there's a few people are saying a few things that make me believe that maybe we are the turn where people will understand the channel is that important, Maybe the variety, the increased variety of channel partners is the reason for that. New MSPs, new very, very niche market MSPs, as you mentioned, existing VARs, fast evolving system integrators. Maybe that's the reason why we're suddenly thinking, hey, we need to change that. I hope that's not just wishful thinking.
0: What I am curious about, and how PRM might be able to help as well, is you've got the traditional model in channel of vendor with partner. But increasingly, what I'm seeing is the stack becomes more complex. The vendor is just one component. And the glue that brings it all together are the partners. And increasingly, what I'm starting to see is partner with partner. And the vendors happen to be solutions that they bring to the table to the end user. And the balance of power, I think, is going to shift over time. Now, again, this may be wistful thinking, but I'm certainly seeing it in my MSP clients that they're starting to look at this partner with partner model because they recognize that with co operation they're able to perform much, much better. They can play to their strengths without having to invest massively in bringing on more people and bringing on recruiting more vendors, that they start working collaboratively. And in order to deliver a much better solution for the end user, But the power seems to be shifting ever so slowly, but slightly, towards a partners being the central hub of all of this. What's your view on
1: that? I must be much more pessimistic than you are, Marcus. I've seen that requirement, that need, that desire for full partner ecosystems to happen a long time ago. I remember... When I worked in the late 90s at 3Com and talking to Cisco, we were talking about things like this then, 20 years ago, because the fact of the matter is partners have always had the role of being that aggregator of solutions at all times. So I've seen that happen. I'm glad you say you see that shift happening ever so slightly (laughs) because I'm not seeing much of it. I am seeing some. I do see some vendors coming to us and say, can we enable that partner ecosystem? But the reality is, I think vendors are too selfish. And for the right reason, they need to report to the board, they need to report to the investors about sales of their products. And although a lot of them do see the need to enable their partners in that kind of two-partner-to-partner two partner ecosystem, The reality is, at the end of the quarter, they're going to call their partner and say, "Why have you sold for me? They're not going to call and say, "Why have you sold for yourself or for my competitor's vendor? So I don't see that shift happening very quickly. Maybe I'm an old guy who's seen too much and who doesn't believe that things can change.
0: I get why you're jaded, and I absolutely understand that based on historical precedent. Now, that said, If that is genuinely the case, then what reason do vendors have to train their partners how to sell? I get that they want them to help them sell their stuff. But historically, what that's been is, here's a couple of data sheets and let's talk about products and rush to a demo. That is the antithesis, the absolute opposite of selling. What that is, is trying to educate. And that doesn't sell stuff. People buy in spite of it, not because of it. And that is wasted money. It's a total waste of money, total waste of resource. The smarter ones are investing in their partners. They're working together to develop a plan. They're working together to develop the positions for each of their respective businesses for the business that they want to become. They're looking at their existing people and seeing, do they fit? And if not, they're replacing them, training them, or putting them into new roles. They're putting processes in place, and this is where PRM can be really powerful, helping them to map together systems and processes that allow both sides to speak the same language and deliver towards the same outcome, and then measure the stuff that actually matters. Because again, historically, most sales organizations, channels included, have tracked lagging indicators, not leading indicators. They spend their time on the wrong end of the problem, which is demos. How many demos have you got? How many proposals are you churning out? None of that stuff actually helps you to sell stuff. What actually helps you to sell stuff is having a common purpose, common language, understanding who your target customer is, creating the right messaging in order to personalize those messages and enter the conversations they are already having. Focus on their business pain, personalize the pain so that you get individual buy in within the end user customer to map out the enterprise buying team and then to manage that whole sales process. Now, that's what the smart money is doing. But I get where they're coming from because that's what they've always done. That's what they think made them successful in the past. But what I'm seeing in some of the large organizations is turnover in the sales teams of five months. That means your channel manager turns over two and a half times a year. Now, if you're dealing with a dozen partners, a dozen vendors, you're going to end up with vendor fatigue. Now, what are the larger organizations doing to combat that? It's interesting
1: because I deal with a lot of channel marketeers and the churn is very high too. It's not in a space of five months, but every two years you have new people coming on board. So for those responsible to maybe put some of those systems and processes enabling platforms in place to support large partner ecosystems, what you see is product starts, people stay and two years later they've gone and products have to start again. And so there is a same churn there. But again, it comes back to on that specific front to what we're talking about is the channel organization is a poor child of the family not so strategic and therefore the churn is high to answer your questions what do i see organization do i do see organization in evolvingly starting to formalize processes workflows and system to do exactly what you said which is trying to understand the partners trying to understand what they're trying to do trying to deliver information in a meaningful way, trying to make them look outside the box, trying to maybe collaboratively co-market. I see some of that happen. The pace of that change is slow, but it is happening. To, again, go back to your questions, how do we fix that churn in a sales organization? For me, it's, it's the same. Is Remember, who that person is, it's that Greenfield sales guy who just landed the job as channel sales. He's done his four months, realizing it's hard work, decides to move on. Can't blame the guy because, again, he's been given little money to do his job. He has probably 50 partners to deal with every day. He has that huge collaborative work he's got to do you described earlier. He's working himself 100 hours. So the channel partner is working 100 hours there. They're confused. They have 100 partners to deal with. It's a nightmare for them. So what do they leave after five months? Because they burn out. They don't see the results. How do you change that? Again, we need to elevate that. We need to get more focus, more processes, more tools to support the on-channel sales guys. We need to recruit better channel sales guys. We need to give them less credit time, set expectations more realistically.
0: This again comes back to a theory that Davies and I have been developing, which is that channel managers should develop a special forces unit of partners so that they can spend real quality time with them, helping them to recruit the right partners in the first place, make sure there's that alignment right at the beginning. When they recruit them, to onboard them properly. And that first 120 days, I consider to be the time where you either help them to succeed or you set them up to fail. And this is where you train them on your products, but more importantly, how to sell them, how to sell generally, how to develop messaging targeted specifically for the job functions that they are selling into. And Jay was talking a couple of months back with me saying that 80% of all tech purchases in 2019 will actually be made by the line of business. Now, a lot of partners have not really played in that space before. They're comfortable and familiar selling into IT. Now they have to sell to a much broader church of marketing, sales, operations. They need to be able to sell into the C-suite. They need to be able to sell for finance, dealing with legal. And that's a much, much more sophisticated person who's required to be able to do that. So this then brings us back to this whole piece around the customer experience alignment between marketing, business development, sales, onboarding, customer success, customer service, account management. If all of those things are not part of one continuum and they're all different silos, you're going to create a condition for things to go horribly wrong which is why I think people have found channels so difficult in the past. Sales, like channel, I think is a science. It's 10% art and 90% systems and processes. So what are the processes that you're starting to see the smaller up vendors trying to engage their partners with in order that they can go from small to big in a relatively short space of time without the wheels falling off?
1: Well, actually, I see quite a lot of those, and they start with what's very basic. They start with communications. They start with information. That's where they start, and that's where they should start. And then they evolve, okay? But sometimes, unfortunately, they go off too fast, and they evolve according to the tick list model, which is, everybody else does that, therefore, I'm going to do that too. That's where they always fail, because they follow what's been done before. And so suddenly you have a vendor that has a couple of hundred partners, and suddenly they're thinking, "Oh, we need to do incentives, and we need to do co-marketing, and we need to do that and that," which is far too too far-fetched. And we see the demand in PRM for true partner enablement dashboard, trying to understand where your partners are in the process of maybe self-learning the training. Very very important. You obviously need. Make sure your partners are fully aware on how to sell, how to support your products. It's okay to do when you have a one-on-one relationship, but when that kind of goes into a larger scale, you need to automate that process. So we see a lot of demand for learning management system. But more importantly, we see the demand on the vendor side for understanding where those partners are in that process and what they need to do next. But too often, again, Marcus, we see people going from nothing to trying to squeeze everything into a partner relationship management system because John, across the road has just done that to some success.
0: One of the things that I've seen with mixed success is the whole process of gamification in terms of onboarding a new partner to make sure that sales, marketing, operations, support all use the partner portal and start getting engaged through the training. How effectively are you finding the process of gamification? And are there any tips or best practices that you can suggest?
1: Okay. Before I do that, I need to stop because I've heard you say the same thing twice. And a lot of people said the onboarding process needs to be very, very process-oriented and needs to happen sometimes they say 30 days, sometimes they say 90 days, sometimes, as you said today, 120 days. But I'm going to stop you there, Marcus, because when you said that, you made a mistake. Okay. The mistake you made is you thought that the partner themselves was ready, had the time to be unboarded in the first 120 days. That's an assumption. That's an assumption you're making. That's an assumption everybody's making. So we're making an assumption that a partner comes on our portal and we have to unboard them straight away because we have 30 days, we have 90 days, we have 100 That's wrong. If a partner was to come on your portal, let's imagine they're doing it for the right reason, which is they have a customer in front of them that is asking for your solution. So what do they do? They go and register. That's happened all the time, okay? So they come on your portal, they register on your portal. What do they want to do at that point in time? They want your support. They don't want to be onboarded. In fact, they don't have time to be onboarded because what they have is they have the need to deploy your solution right now. And that's going to take them 30 days or 90 days or 120 days. In this industry, we're making assumptions the whole time, and they're wrong. And that is my point. There is clearly a place to onboard a partner. But as to when that happens, we need to let the partners decide. As part of an engagement process, as you think, we need to make sure the sales guys know what to sell and how to sell. We need to make sure that at the next level, the technical guys know how to support and install. We need to know their marketing teams, how to market together when the relationship has grown. Yeah, we need to make all of this happen. Do they need to happen at the same time? Are they going to happen at the same time? Does a partner want them to happen at the same time? No. So we need to stop making this assumption.
0: I think your point is extremely valid and very fair. What I would qualify that with is I firmly believe that if you're bringing a partner on board, no matter whether they're bringing a deal to the table or you're looking at them for their long-term strategic value, what is really crucially important is for the channel manager and the partner to sit down and develop a clear upfront agreement as to what the terms of engagement are going to be, to develop a prenup um, who keeps the kids in the event of a divorce. What's expected of one another? Why are they in this partnership? And that way, those types of issues will come out in the course of the conversation because if the partner is saying, look, we want it for this, yeah, there will be other opportunities, but we're not ready to be onboarded because we've got this stuff. Then the channel manager absolutely needs to be aware of that and factor that in. So I take your point, and I agree.
1: Don't take it back. again.
0: No, no, it's not bad at all. I think you're absolutely right. It's and and the, in the contracting that things go wrong. That, that's right. Always start upstream. You see the symptoms occur downstream, but the problem, the course, started probably weeks or months before.
1: I agree, and again. When you're looking at a a relationship that's very well managed, where you have an account manager for that partner, then obviously time should be spent. And I think generally speaking, time is spent in managing that and understanding and planning together. I think the problem again is when you increase the scale and we're looking at 100 partners and the support of 10,000 of partners, then that relationship, that planning just goes away. It disappears in fact my you know sometimes I do laugh so on partner program typically on a partner portal the first person who registers on behalf of a company we call them a primary contact or a champion we let them answer questions about the company sounds good because we as vendors need that information and because we need to kind of give someone the role to manage that on our behalf the reality the person who registers, may have no clue about it. There may be the wrong person. There may be a super technical pre-sales engineer who just happened to register because they've seen a product you're selling that's interesting. So again, the difficulty we have is translating what you are suggesting that happens at the human level for organizations that have few partners to the scale I'm looking at, which is of partners in between we are breaking that whole process. And it's very difficult to put in place. And unfortunately, to put it in place in a large-scale environment, you need to spend the money. You need to have the money. And again, we come back to that is maybe that money is not sufficient today. Maybe we have aspirations that we can't deliver upon because we don't have the budget. And again, that's my point about we need to raise the bar as channel organizations. We need to ask for more money. Today, so much money is actually spent in digital marketing, in SEO, in all of these things for organizations that are very channel-centric?
0: I think the key conclusion here is that mid-market space is possibly the most challenging because at the high end, a place that you play in, there are very well-defined, well-traveled roads in terms of how to grow and develop your channel and be very effective. So the Cisco's, the Microsofts of this world, they do a fantastic job. Then at the bottom end, you've got the lower end of it. You've got the startups. And as they move into scale up, that's where I think the greatest evolution is going to come. Because you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Dutch have a wonderful expression, which is too small to be a tablecloth and too big to be a tea towel. Uh, (laughs) they're, They're kind of caught in that place. And they have to pull the best from both ends of the spectrum. And I think what I'm hearing from this conversation and many others is that you probably need to have two types of channel manager, one that deals with your strategic partners and one that deals with your tactical partners. Because I think trying to do both of those jobs, you're not going to do a good job in either. Does that make
1: sense? It does make sense. And also, we need to make sure that their jobs are different, that they shouldn't try to do the same thing. Also make sure that the expectation of those jobs is different as well, that the returns is going to be different. So what we can't do is, is say, right, you're the big, you're the small, and you do the same job. No, we can't. Yeah. And we expect the same thing. No, we can't. So yes, I think you've just touched on a very important point. Evolution, I'll go back to the point you made. Evolutions from being able to manage partners on a one-on-one basis, Via Excel spreadsheet or via email, great. Okay, that's easy. You can be very, very human. In fact, sometimes too human, spend too much time around golf courses. So that's required a certain skill set as a channel sales guys. But typically, you can find those, and you can do a good job. The problem is the evolution from there. Okay, trying to multiply, duplicate, systemize that approach to take you to the next level. And, unfortunately, all companies have to do that. You have to go through that progression. That's, unfortunately, where I think people don't realize the task, the budget's required to make that happen.
0: I agree. I think this conversation needs to be taken further. We don't have time now. I'd like to continue it in the future if you're up for it. And, first of all, thank you so much. This has been really challenging, insightful and thoroughly enjoyable. So much appreciated, Olivia. Thank you very much. Thank you. I do have a couple of final questions. First of all, what do you recommend people read or what are you reading that's really forced you to think differently in and around the channel? And if not reading podcasts or videos?
1: I don't follow the press necessarily. It's important to follow that. I've read your book, Marcus, and I find it very insightful, but I'm not going to give you a plug there.
0: No, I'm from- making sound sales work, but don't read it, whatever you do.
1: No, no, do read it, but okay. But I haven't (laughs) said so. No, I think there are some vendors out there. They are either the unicorns or the big, big guys. You mentioned Cisco's and Microsoft. I know a few others. I read about them. I read in a press about them. I focus on them. I focus on those very unique new ones focus also on the big guys and Microsoft and the Cisco's and the Autodesk and those guys who are leaders in their space by a mile. Because if they're leaders in their space by a mile, nearly a mile, it's because they've done something right. And interesting enough, all of them have done something right. They've done plenty wrong, don't get me wrong. So I always look at the leaders and just them. Sorry,
0: are there any good books or case studies about failures? Because I think Certainly for me, I learn massively from failures, principally my own, but I prefer to learn from other people's. Are there any great case studies that you can point to?
1: No, I can't say. A few of those are my clients as well sometimes, so I have. I've been clients. It's difficult. There are things in that industry that haven't worked. I'll tell you one. In the space of partner programs, we've always known, uh, you know, for the last 30 years that splitting people by revenue, and by maybe by training, certification wasn't enough. So there was a phase in early 2000 where we said, well, let's have a point-based system to manage our partner programs. And some companies were in that way. So essentially, as a partner, you could get points for many, many things. Put all these points together and that gave you a tier. Sounds like a great concept, right? Uh, it is a great concept. The reality is making it happen. and. When you make that happen and you have all these things where people get points for different tasks, you need to have a super infrastructure to do that. You need to also, again, sadly make assumptions as to what's important and what's not. And when you do the tally, you realize, oh, maybe it's a wrong partner in the wrong tier. And so those kind of partner programs have failed. And we're going back to a much more basic solution. To go back to your questions, I don't read about failures. I don't know. Marcus, if you know, just tell people where to go. I, I don't.
0: So, on the similar theme, but more personal, if you were advising your 25 year old self how to avoid acts of idiocy and self sabotage, what would be your top tip?
1: So, first of all, I'm so old, I don't remember what I did 25 years ago, but I'm sure it was absolutely fantastic.
0: <laughs> Very French.
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, there's one thing, okay, and I hope I've done that through my life, but I will ignore tick boxes i will ignore past experiences past programs i would ignore what others have done i will not try to do what everything everybody tells me i need to do i will look back as to what the firstly the customer wants then move that to the what the partner wants and i will then move that to what my organization needs to deliver to make those things happen and i will ignore what I'm told to do, I would ignore those tick boxes. Unfortunately, I see so many failures in the channel industry because people have applied the wrong tick box at the wrong time. I think I mentioned it earlier is, you know, when you start, you don't need to do certain things. When you evolve, you need to start doing them. But the planning of that has to be thought about. And today we're missing that thought process. We just go, Hey, I'm launching a new program. I've got to do that, 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 and that because the competitor next always doing the same. I won't do that.
0: I'll make a recommendation in that case because you've sparked the thought. There's a fabulous book by Ray Dalio called Principles. And his philosophy is that you should question everything. You should challenge yourself. Even if it does work, challenge it. And failure is an opportunity to learn. And what you should be doing is encouraging people to fail fast and fail forward and to admit to those failures. Covering them up is always a big problem. But look for external advice. Go to people who are believable, who've got pedigree, who've got something worthwhile to say and to challenge yourself constantly. Because the minute you get complacent, that's when you get caught. And in Samba, we teach a rule. If the competition is doing it, do the opposite. And in channel, I think it's increasingly important that people take that philosophy because just because it's what's been done in the past doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in the future. And the theory of evolution is all about the survival of the person or the creature that could adapt best to the current environment, not the brawniest, not the one with the biggest muscles. And I think in the channel, you have to think like, a little mammal surviving the meteor crash. How are we going to evolve? How are we going to survive this? And it's a tough, tough market. Jay McBain has said that more has changed in the last 18 months in the channel than in the last 35 years. And I think with the advent of new technologies, AI, machine learning, all of this stuff, we're going to find ourselves in such a state of flux that if we stick with what worked in the past, we will. Eventually,
1: go the way of the dinosaurs. I agree completely. I think the advancement of technologies, the SaaS model is changing, as you say, who we're we selling to or who our partners are selling to. I agree. I think we know in uh, 2019, right? So, millions are there and uh, generation XYZ, whatever is there, everything is changing. We can't look back, but to be truthful, that some evolution started when I started. The world has evolved from day one. The world evolves.
0: It's always changing.
1: And it's always changing. So there's nothing new in that. But I agree. We need to question everything we do and make sure it's relevant to us as organizations, our customers, and our partners. And often, we fail to do that.
0: Absolutely. Olivier Sharon, the Contrarian Channel Chief, thank you ever so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today and I look forward to many more in the future. So this is Marcus Kauke, the Inquisitor, signing off. If you are interested in beta testing the two new training programs that we're launching, the Making Channel Sales Work and Channel Sales Excellence programs, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. And Olivier, how can people get hold of you?
1: I think there's not many Olivier Sharon on this planet. So uh-huh. if you go to Twitter, you can find me at O underscore Choron. Otherwise, you go to LinkedIn, probably the best place. And there's only one there. So find me there.
0: Excellent. And Choron is C-H-O-R-O-N.
1: Correct. Thank you very much, Marcus.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you all. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye.